Well, good morning. Looking forward to our time together studying God's Word, but I always find myself refreshed coming from a time of singing God's Word and singing the truths that are contained within Scripture. Uh, as, we, as we sing these words, there's an encouragement that comes from singing together, from lifting one another up in, uh, in just some unique ways that only song allows, and it's one of the reasons we're encouraged and exhorted in Scripture to uh, come together and sing the Lord's praises and psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, and thankful to do that together this morning. Well, the more I hear news, the more I think about the role of news organizations, the more I think it's just to create more worry, anxiety, perhaps as much as is possible in us. You know, I started to wonder, when was the last time I've watched the news where I've read a newspaper, really an online one. I don't honestly know the last time I've looked at a paper newspaper. But when it's been filled with stories that are positive, of encouraging developments, of uplifting and encouraging information. You know, there's obviously many, many things in this world that could be a source of worry and anxiety. I mean, there's plenty around us. That's no surprise to any one of us sitting in this room. But I really don't need outside sources encouraging my anxiety and worry. I can do that well enough on my own. Our own lives, in fact, present plenty of opportunities for anxiety and worry, don't they? Whether it's work, whether it's finances, whether it's family and relationships, it's the raising of children, just trying to get dinner on the table at night, you name it. There's any number of things in our lives that certainly would afford the opportunity for anxiety and worry. In his excellent work, Respectable Sins, Jerry Bridges identified the issue of worry or anxiety as one of the most frequently taught subjects in the New Testament. As we turn to our text this morning in Matthew 6, Jesus addresses this important topic of worry and anxiety in the life of a person, specifically in the life of a person who is a child of God, one who calls himself a disciple of Jesus Christ. So read along with me as we read together Matthew 6, beginning in verse 25 through the end of the chapter. For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air that they do not sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than that? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. And yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today, tomorrow is thrown in the furnace, will he not much more clothe you? Oh, you have little faith. Do not worry then, saying, what will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. 
So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Let's pray. Father, we do rejoice in being able to gather together this morning. We're thankful for your word, which is here to instruct and to guide us. Father, as we desire to pursue righteousness, as we desire to seek you, as we desire as disciples of you to emulate you, we pray that we would come with open ears, desire to conform our thoughts, our actions, and our lives in line with what you teach, both by example and by imperative. May we honor you and how we respond to your teaching this morning, the teaching that we have within Scripture. Thank you for this sermon. Thank you for dealing specifically with this topic of anxiety and worry that is so prevalent in each one of our lives. In your name, amen. Verse 25 there opens with, for this reason. It really establishes a very tight connection between verses 25 through 34, which we just read, and those preceding verses, verses 19 through 24, that we looked at last week. And Jesus had just finished saying this. He didn't have a week break. He continued right into this. And last week we looked at those verses and the instructions Jesus provides for setting your heart, that is your desire and your infections, not on earthly treasures or earthly things, but on heavenly treasure. We were reminded that we cannot find heaven on earth. Seems like such a simple and obvious thing, and yet it's something that we need to continually remind ourselves. Nor is it possible to worship and love God with our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength while desiring and pursuing the things of this world. So now in verse 25, Jesus calls on his disciples to recognize what is, quite simply, the next logical step. And that is to not even worry about the basic necessities of life in this world. Doesn't mean we don't need them, but don't worry about them. In verse 25, here, Jesus calls on us to enter into this discussion of a sin, of a uh, call it a sin disease that affects each one of us. Last week we saw Jesus exhorting his disciples not to pursue the treasures on this earth, which included, but certainly go beyond mere necessities. And now Jesus is saying, don't even be worried, don't even be anxious about the most basic of needs. Certainly don't pursue the treasures of this world, but even when it comes to the most basic and essential thing you need in this life, there is to be no anxiety and no worry. With this command, Jesus really returns our mind and our attention somewhat to that fourth petition we studied in his exemplary prayer back in verse 11 where he prayed, give us this day our daily bread. There we see the prayer for basic needs, a recognition that God is the ultimate source of these things. And now Jesus is demonstrating that a true disciple will demonstrate their belief that God will answer that very prayer by their lack of anxiety and by their trust in God's provision. But what I like about what Jesus does is he does more than simply tell his disciples, stop worrying. He doesn't just tell them worry is a sin. He doesn't simply reprimand them by pointing to a lack of trust in God. He teaches and exhorts and provides the antidote for anxiety. 
Jesus recognizes that the only way any of us are going to be able to address anxiety or worry in our lives is by having a change in our beliefs and our thinking. I mean, we are naturally, as persons, pretty good at critiquing other people, a little less good at critiquing ourselves. We're really good at critiquing other people and seeing things that they need to change. However, we are much less adept at coming alongside, sympathizing, helping to solve the problem with other persons. I would dare say each of us can grow in this area. Here in these verses, Jesus provides three components for dealing with anxiety and worry. And they form, if you will, Jesus' antidote for anxiety. And the first of these that we'll look at is that we must remember. Specifically, remember that your heavenly Father cares for you. We'll see that in verses 26 through 30. Secondly, we're going to be told we need to recognize. Recognize that God already knows what you need in verses 31 through 32. Thirdly, we are exhorted to run, to run after and pursue righteousness and the kingdom of God. And these three components form this antidote for anxiety. We'll observe and discuss each of these and how specifically they help us deal with anxiety and worry. Not simply stop doing it, but how do we stop doing it? And what are we to do instead? And we want to look at these things so that we might follow Peter's exhortation to believers in 1 Peter 5-7 where he says, Cast all of your anxiety on him because, and you know the end of the verse, he cares for you. Our desire this morning is that we would walk away not only recognizing the great sin that anxiety is, not only the damaging effects of anxiety on our spiritual and physical lives, but that we would understand its root cause and how we can begin to fight against it and come alongside others who struggle with anxiety as well. So this first component that forms Jesus' antidote for anxiety, we said is found in verses 25 through 30, and it's to remember Remember that we have a heavenly Father who cares for us. The Greek word here translated as anxiety, the beginning of this verse, or worry, depending on your translation, signifies being greatly concerned, nervous, or worried. This word is found, the Greek term, in the Apocrypha twice in context where it's associated with insomnia, the inability to sleep. In Greek translations of extra-biblical Jewish writings, we find the term used where the writer says, jealousy and anger shorten one's days, and anxiety brings on old age before its time. Our English colloquialism might be, you're turning your hair gray by your worry. Our English words, worry and anxious, really do a good job of communicating exactly what this term means in the Greek. Worry and anxiety go beyond just being concerned about something. They manifest through that unsettled feeling in the pit of your stomach that won't go away. It's demonstrated in the inability to focus on anything for very long because of how preoccupied with thoughts and concerns over something else. It's what keeps you awake at night. It makes it difficult for you to even enjoy being around other people because you are so preoccupied with worry or concern over something else. Ultimately, anxiety and worry steal your joy. Because you are focused on that thing, not on God, not on pursuing Him, and not enjoying what He has blessed you with today. 
As we look here, we see that Jesus' overall argument against anxiety focuses upon the bare essentials, upon basic necessities. But the argument goes that if God will provide for these things, if he will provide for the basic needs of his creation, then we can have every confidence that he will provide whatever else we need and whatever else is for our ultimate good in this life. And not only that, but Jesus also calls, calls on those who claim to be his disciples to remember that while there are basic needs and necessities of life, life still consists of so much more than just food and drink. Jesus is highlighting the reality that when we are anxious over food or drink or anything else in this life, we begin to neglect other important aspects of life. Specifically, as we will see, those things that are part of storing up treasures in heaven. We begin to develop that short-sightedness and that myopia. It's almost like the blinders they put on horses when they drive a carriage. You become so preoccupied you can see nothing else. And you think that your worry and concern makes up the entirety of your existence at the moment. So Jesus tells us, take off the blinders, put the corrective lenses on, and see that life consists of so much more, especially when we consider our spiritual lives. From the beginning of creation, God has demonstrated that he provides for his creation. As Leon Morris observed, this attitude removes people from preoccupation with their own worldly success. It discourages the wealthy and the comfortable from concentrating on their own success and the poor and uncomfortable from concentrating on their own misery. It helps us to lift our eyes off of our circumstances, off of this world toward heaven and the pursuit of heavenly things while on this earth, while living under the sun. And while not everyone who struggles with worry or anxiety is consumed with the pursuit of wealth, everyone who is consumed with the pursuit of wealth will battle anxiety and worry. Psalm 55, we read together this morning, we see in verse 22 the instruction to cast your burdens upon the Lord and he will sustain you. The Greek translation of the Old Testament translates that word burden or care as the same word we have here for anxiety. The same term we have here in Matthew 6. And you'll notice in just that short poetic expression, the same solution and the same truth is presented that we have in these verses. However, as we've already noted, when we come back to this, it's not enough to simply say, don't worry. Don't be anxious. If it were that simple, we would just all do it right away. Because we don't like the feeling of anxiety. We don't like the feeling of worry. If it was as simple as just stopping, we would stop. And so the, how do we do this? How do we root out anxiety and worry? It's a serious endeavor. It's not a half-hearted commitment. So Jesus provides another point of remembrance in verse 26 by looking to the example of creation. He points to the birds of the air and how they don't worry about food or drink, and they don't farm, they don't store up their produce, and despite having nothing stored up, they do not fret or worry. It is important to note here the limit of Jesus' metaphor. We're not to pattern our whole lives after birds, start living in nests in the trees. But as D.A. Carson notes, the point here is not that disciples need not work. Birds do not simply wait for God to drop food into their beaks, but they need not worry 
about that provision. Here Jesus calls on his disciples to remember that they are much more than birds. Their lives are worth so much more than any animal. They are children of God. And this seems so simple, but again, this is the short-sightedness that we develop where we forget such simple truths. But if we are God's children, how much more trust and confidence do we have that he'll care for us if he's caring for the rest of his creation? Now, if you struggle with the truth and the reality that God is your father and understanding that and having it change your patterns of thought and how you live, I want to give you some ways to start developing that, to start embracing the reality that God is your father. First, if, if you struggle with that concept, it's probably because you don't know him well enough. Start studying scripture. Study it more than you already are. Study it like you did when you were trying to learn everything you could about your future husband or your wife, when you wanted to know what makes them tick, what do they enjoy, what don't they like. Study it like you did when you were studying for that test that would get you into school. Study Scripture as if your life depends on it, because your joy in this life does. Secondly, stop and remember. Perhaps it's a journal or some other means of recording God's continual care for you. I love the sign Elise has in her home that says, I still remember when I prayed for the things I have now. The question is, is do we stop and remember? If we were going to sit down and together over a cup of coffee, would you begin to be able to just start reciting to me how God has provided for you this past week? this past month, this past year, this past decade? How quickly would those things come to mind? Our lack of remembering feeds a lack of trust. And the inverse is true. The more we remember, the more we will trust God when new situations arise. The more you will understand and remember his character as Father. Well, Jesus asked, the question in verse 27, who can add a single cubit to his life through worry? Or it may say hour in your translation. A, a cubit was typically a measurement of height or distance, though at times it was used as a temporal measurement or metaphorically as a temporal measurement. So Jesus is saying, who can add to this journey of life a single cubit of distance by worry? The reality is that we cannot add an extra second, an extra minute, an extra hour, an extra day, an extra week, an extra year by any amount of worry and anxiety. And yet if you look at our lives, our lives would seem to say the opposite at times, wouldn't it? As if somehow me worrying is all that's keeping me alive for tomorrow. But it's much more profound than even that. Not only can we not add to it. Do you realize that our days on this earth under the sun have already been established? They've already been numbered by your heavenly Father. Job 14.5 notes, Since his days are determined, speaking of man, the number of his months is with you, and the limits you have set so that he cannot pass. And in Psalm 139, verses 16 through 18, we read, Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were all written, the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not even one of them, 
So before I even had my first day, they were ordained. How precious also are your thoughts of me, O God. How vast the sum of them. If I should count them, they would outnumber the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. Since God has fixed the number of our days, lack of food or abundance of food will not add a single moment to that time. Put another way, one commentator noted, a person's survival depends on divine sovereignty, not human anxiety. Human survival or a person's survival depends on divine sovereignty, not human anxiety. So in addition to remembering that we are children of God, and more important than the creation that he cares for daily, we're also to be reminded that worry does not change God's plans and it does not change the number of our days. Worry is as futile as trying to mop up the ocean. You could stand on the beach day and night mopping at the waves and never accomplish anything other than looking absurd. But we all do it. I'm guilty of it. Every one of us here this morning has been guilty of it at some point. We slip into this absurdity when we forget. When we stop remembering who God is and who our Heavenly Father is. Jesus is not done with calling on his disciples to remember, though. He has one more analogy for us in verses 28 through 30. Here Jesus moves from the necessity of food to the necessity of clothing. The clothes are necessary is a no-brainer. Ever since Adam and Eve ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, clothing has been necessary. In fact, if you remember, God provided clothing for Adam and Eve to replace their ill-conceived covering of fig leaves. God has been providing clothing and meeting those needs since the beginning. And Jesus here reminds his disciples that he will continue providing. Remember, Jesus is giving this sermon on a hillside, probably a large plateau on a hill or a mount. And depending upon the time of year, he may have been surrounded by wildflowers. Jesus thus points to the lilies of the field as an example of how God provides clothing and covering. And the analogy is poignant. Jesus compares the glory of Solomon to the beauty of the wildflowers and says that even Solomon's wardrobe did not compare to these. Just as a fun aside, how did Jesus know what Solomon wore? It's one of those implicit descriptions of his divinity, that he was there from the beginning. And if God cares so much about these flowers, to adorn them with such beauty that are here today and gone tomorrow, how much more will he care for us? So we're to remember that God faithfully provides even for the clothes on our back. It doesn't say we'll have the fanciest clothes. It doesn't say we'll have designer jeans or a closet full of shoes. But God will provide for those basic needs. All we have to do is look to the flowers of the field to be reminded that he cares about his creation. And so much more for his children. Jesus ends verse 30 by saying, you of little faith. Now this is important. It's important for a couple of reasons. First, here in the other places where Jesus, has u- Jesus uses that term, little faith, it's always applied to his disciples. In other words, they do have faith. These are disciples. They believe God. It's just that they have little faith. Jesus' desire is their faith and trust in God would grow 
fact, Jesus here diagnoses the root issue, which is that their anxiety and worry is the result of little faith. If ever there was a passage that highlighted the need for ongoing sanctification, growth in holiness, and the pursuit of righteousness, this is it. Faith saves. Faith alone, by God's gift alone, saves. And from the moment of salvation, that faith is intended to be built up. And God has given us the instruments for doing that. Paul, writing Ephesians, says he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Are you appropriating those things? Are you walking in obedience? Are you pursuing righteousness? That faith builds and grows through a life of obedience, a life of pursuing to know God and seeking to be more like Christ. This first component of Jesus' antidote for anxiety, remembering, is incredibly important. But it's not the only element Jesus provides as the solution for anxiety or worry. The second component can be observed in verses 31 and 32, and that is to recognize. Recognize specifically that God already knows your needs. Anxiety is natural for the unbelieving world around us. I mean, it's second nature. They don't know their heavenly father. They do not have one in whom they can trust. So they will naturally believe it is entirely up to them and their efforts to survive. They must seek after these things to survive. Verses 31 through 32, Jesus refers to the Gentiles. It's another way of saying the idolaters. It says that they eagerly seek after these things, that is food, drink, and clothing. They suffer from that severe myopia They think that this world and the things of this world is all that's important. They're unable to see past the needs and the treasures of this world. And the result is that they're consumed with anxiety and worry. There is no peace. There is no comfort. There is no true joy. Whatever happiness is experienced is but momentary and short-lived. And it quickly is drowned out by the need for those necessities or the accumulation of more things. One commentator noted that worry is practical atheism and an affront to God. I will go further and say that worry is practical idolatry and is an affront to God. It's not saying there is no God. It is making money, wealth, and possessions one's God. What one serves, as we looked at last week in verse 24. And so Jesus says his disciples must recognize that God already knows what we need. And again, we see the importance of remembering that we are children of God because if we're children of God and God already knows what we need, then he's going to provide. None of this has caught him off guard. Now again, he may not give us everything we want. But how many of you as a child were giving everything you want by a loving parent? How many of you as a parent gives everything that your child wants? There are times where we are stretched to the limit in trusting him. Just like when you exercise or learn a new skill, that stretching builds muscle or it builds knowledge. And in this case, that stretching helps to build and increase our faith. The sad part, though, is that we take God's provision of our needs for granted. Part of that's because if we really stop and think about it, those provisions are so frequent, so all-encompassing, that it's like breathing, which we probably don't think about most days. 
It's one of the reasons I believe God will often stretch us, so that we are forced to grow in our trust of him. And yet the very fact that you are in this room dressed with clothes on demonstrates that since birth, you have had sufficient food and drink to survive. Your needs have been met. No matter how much more you wanted, no matter how hard things are right now, you are in this room alive. Your needs have been met. And God has already worked out the provision for your needs tomorrow. So don't worry. Now again, that doesn't mean don't be industrious. It doesn't mean don't work. It just means that God meets our needs through our obedience. One very practical way to cultivate this element of recognizing is to make it a habit to continually thank God for his provision. This develops an awareness of God's provision. It helps us to recognize the many, many ways God provides for us. And this is similar to remembering, but where remembering looks at the past, recognizing looks at the present and the future. Whether it's through daily prayer, a journal, note cards, or any other means, start giving thanks every time you see God providing in the moment. The more you practice this, the more you will be attuned to recognizing God's provision, not just in those areas, but in all the other areas of your life. And the more you recognize the many ways God is at work providing for you, the greater your faith and your trust in him will be, and the less anxious and worried you will become. Now, whereas verses 25 through 32 contain these negative admonitions of do not worry and do not be anxious, verses 33 and 34 contain the positive exhortation. Jesus does not stop and just say, stop doing that. He tells us where we should be directing our energy and our efforts as he provides this third component for the antidote to anxiety. That's that we must run. We must run after and pursue righteousness and the kingdom of God. Here in verses 33 through 34, Jesus does not simply try to draw the disciples away from worry. He wants to direct them and reorient them and their energy and their effort toward seeking the kingdom of God. Righteousness here is not a reference to salvation. Remember, he's speaking to disciples, those who are already children of God. So the reference to righteousness is to God's holy standard, to his character and who he is. We are to pursue living a life that accords to God's standard. Simple word for that is obedience. To what he has laid out for us, both by example and by command within Scripture, through both implication and exhortation, we are to pursue and to seek to imitate Christ and become like our Heavenly Father. I love watching ways in which children seek to imitate parents. I remember one fondly of Judah. I pace when I talk on the phone. It's a, it's a habit I haven't, can't get rid of. I picked it up from my father. But I was in my office, home office, just on the phone, walking in circles, and I looked behind me, and there's Judah trying to step exactly where I stepped as I walked around on the phone. It was just a sweet picture of wanting to imitate a father. Oh, that we would seek to imitate our heavenly father in such a way, that we want to step where he stepped. We don't want to step out of line with what he wants and what he desires. 
And this is such a good reminder here in what Jesus does in this direction of our efforts and energies to how we should help encourage and exhort others. It's not enough to just tell someone, stop doing that. That may need to be said. But we need to express what should be done instead. Teach and encourage in what should be pursued rather than just telling someone, stop worrying and stop fretting. And that term first in verse 33, or seek first his kingdom, it means of highest importance. Seek firstly. Seek above all else. Seek of primary importance the kingdom of God. By rightly orienting and prioritizing our daily decisions and thoughts, it helps to bring all things in line with his will. Start your day by purposing to seek the kingdom of God. Make sure that it is the first step you take in any endeavor. Begin in prayer, asking God to help you orient your time, your energy, and your efforts toward righteousness and his kingdom. Disciples are not to first seek those things they want, not even those things they need for earthly existence, but first and foremost to seek God, to know him, to love him, to obey him, and to make him known. And then, God promises that all these things will be added to you. Notice this important statement. All these things will be added to you. What things? The things we've just discussed, these basic necessities of life. Note that while God is a loving Father, we are more important than any animal or any other created thing. And yes, God knows what we need. The assurance of these things is our obedience, our pursuit of righteousness, and seeking the kingdom of God. We should never presume upon God or call his goodness into question. But that is especially true. Before I even say, say what I'm going to say next, we should never presume upon God or call his goodness into question because we have such a limited perspective. How many times have we questioned what God is doing in our lives only to thank him a day, a week, a month, a year later that he didn't give us what we asked for? Because we didn't see everything he was working. But this lack of presumption, lack of calling him to question, is especially true when we aren't even walking in obedience. If you're not willing to pursue righteousness, then expect no assurance that these things will be added to you. Expect no comfort, no lack of anxiety. Expect anxiousness, expect worry. In fact, the reason he will withhold these things, even from his children at times, is the same reason that he provides these things to his children. He loves you. He loves us. And because he loves us, his love means that at times there will be discipline, just as a loving father or mother disciplines and instructs. The motivation is exactly the same, for our good, out of love. Jesus ends with verse 34, which again exhorts against worry and about the future. There's no benefit, Jesus says. There's no benefit to worry. We've already noted that worry cannot add a single moment to our life. The only thing that worry about tomorrow and the things of tomorrow is going to accomplish is to sap the joy out of today. Proverbs 27.1 says, Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring forth. Your worry may be pointless to begin with because God's already sorted it all out. It is pointless to begin with. 
Not only does this whole section logically flow out of the discussion of pursuing wealth that we saw last week, but it ties back so well to the prayer Jesus prayed back in verse 11 of give us this day our daily bread. A prayer that is prayed either at the beginning of the day or the night before in anticipation of the following day. Either way, it ties in perfectly with the command to not be anxious, especially about the morrow. If we're praying this, if we trust and believe, if we're praying the Lord's Prayer, praying the content and the theology that's contained there in the Lord's Prayer, a prayer that calls on us to recognize and ask Him to give us our daily needs, then we must trust and believe. To do otherwise is to be the double-minded man that James describes, who is blown and tossed by the wind, unstable in all his ways. Either we pray to God and we trust him, or we make a mockery of prayer by our anxiety and worry, which demonstrates that lack of trust. And both to other believers and to a watching world, we mock God. If you say that you pray regularly to God, and people know you pray regularly to God, and your life is filled with worry and anxiety, that says something. And it says something about you, and it says something about your trust in God. And to a watching world, it says something about the faithfulness of God to them. This is similar to Paul's instruction to the Philippians of Philippians 4, 6 through 7, where he says, be anxious for nothing. There's that command, but he goes on, but in everything. Not in a few things, not in little things, not in big things, in everything. By prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And there's an ellipsis. It's something that's not stated, but is fully implied, which is, and then believing in it. The peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The solution is to pray for all these things, to give thanks at all times, which would encompass both the remembering and the recognizing of God's provision and care, but there is the expectation that we trust and we believe. Note the comment that Jesus provides that each day has enough trouble for its own. It's almost personifying a day as worrying about itself. God does not promise believers a trouble-free life. He promises to never leave us or forsake us in the midst of the troublesome world in which we live. But he has never promised us an easy or trouble-free life. In the midst of this troublesome world in which we live, we should long for our future home, future reward in the kingdom of God where we will no longer be burdened by the troubles of this world brought on by sin. The solution Jesus provides here for fighting anxiety is not to go hide in a cave, not to try and eliminate every trouble, but it's to pursue God because that is how trust and faith will grow. It's true that anxiety and worry are sins, specifically because they are a form of unbelief. But oftentimes it's what's manifested through that anxiety or worry which become even greater sins. That's why it's important that we recognize them as sin and hopefully that recognition motivates you and motivates me to deal with them, deal decisively and quickly with them. But the problem arises when all we do is tell ourselves to stop sinning. And we don't think about what do I have to do to stop sinning? 
What do I have to do to start pursuing righteousness? Jesus deals gently with his disciples here, those who he knew had little faith. And he gives them encouragement and hope in their battle against the frequent temptation toward anxiety in this difficult world. God's sovereignty and his care for his children does not guarantee an easy life. Some will be wealthy, some will be poor. A wealthy Christian is not automatically a greedy person any more than a poor person is automatically an anxious person. Paul could claim the loving care of the Father, though he was often without food, cold, and lacking covering as the Lord stretched him. James describes poor believers who are without clothing and lacking food. And he brings them into the assembly that we might be generous and give and share. Oftentimes, God's means of providing and meeting the needs are each other. We talk about the blessing of coming together as fellow believers. A big part of that is to care for one another. Because that's how God has orchestrated believers to operate. He could have done it any number of ways. He could miraculously provide for needs as he did, you know, the ravens bringing food for Elijah. There's any number of things that he could do. But he's chosen that we would look to those needs and help serve one another. But that doesn't mean there won't be times where we experience need and need others' help. But it's trust in our Heavenly Father that makes it easier to endure these times of difficulty. Paul also describes times of plenty. And the point is that being content and lacking anxiety is never an issue of how much or how little you have at the moment. It has everything to do with how much or how little you love and trust God and His promises. Do you trust, do you really believe that even the hard and the difficult times are for your good? When we lose sight of ourselves, when we are reminded that God cares, when we remember that this earth is passing and us along with it, and when we lift our eyes toward the heavenly city and future home that awaits us after the sun sets on this life, that is when we will find rest and joy today. That's when we'll be content with whatever comes in this life. It will be hard. There are going to be events that are going to shake us and stir those feelings of anxiousness. It may come minutes, hours, days after you step foot from here this morning, but it will come. The question will be, how am I going to respond Is it to dwell on the uncertainty, begin scrambling both mentally and physically to find safety and security in this life? Or will I turn to the Lord in prayer, reminding myself of the Heavenly Father who cares, being diligent to obey whatever He has placed in front of me? Our lack of anxiety should be a tremendous tool for evangelism. And I don't want you to leave here just thinking about the benefit that a lack of anxiety is for you. Praise the Lord that it is, but it is more than that. Removing anxiety becomes a testimony to others. It's one of the reasons we should be so urgent in our desire to rid ourselves of it, so that we might testify, that we might be a light, that we might be that salt to the wonderful, sovereign God we have, a testimony to his faithfulness, a testimony to our trust in him and the trust he can give in the midst of whatever comes. Because there is a world outside of these doors that would love to have that type of assurance. 
even if they don't realize it, even if all they've ever known is worry and anxiety. This fight against anxiety is, and worry is not a battle that is won in a single skirmish. It's a larger war that's going to be waged throughout the rest of our lives. In order to win this war, we need to understand what is at the root and the foundation of our anxiety, which is lack of faith, and apply Jesus' prescription for dealing with anxiety and worry. Spurgeon said of Luther when facing a difficult day, he would say, I have so much business to do today, so much that could occupy my time, that I shall not be able to get through it with less than three hours of prayer. Is that our perspective? When things get harder, when the task laid before us seems overwhelming, do we rely more on God, focus more on his provision, or are we quick to cut out those spiritual disciplines in order to busy ourselves with the tasks at hand and begin checking off the to-do list? I mean, what a great testimony to our lack of anxiety, to a watching world if we were to do this where worry is an expression of doubt, where anxiety would say that God is ignorant of his people's needs or lacks the power to meet their needs or does not care enough about us to meet them. The trusting God, a serenity when faced with difficult circumstances, demonstrates a belief that God does in fact know, care, and provide for his children. Please don't miss out on the tremendous tool for evangelism that comes from overcoming anxiety and worry. Jesus provides us the antidote in these verses to remember his provision, recognize that he already knows what we need, and to run after righteousness. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness in meeting us right where we are at. Lord, you knew so aptly that not only would your disciples 2,000 years ago need this instruction, but your disciples today, 2,000 years later, need this instruction. Father, thank you for your faithfulness and your goodness to us, to not leave us wondering how to deal with this, not leave us wallowing in misery and worry, but giving us a solution. Thank you for the great love that has been bestowed upon us that we can be called children of God. May we be faithful to remember our position. May we be faithful to regularly give thanks as we recognize your provision. And may we faithfully pursue you in all things, seeking to be obedient to you in all things, quick to repent when we slip and fall, and turning from our sin. And would you grant us that peace which passes all understanding? Amen.